to make sure that patients have their questions answers, we need to first make sure that we, as physicians, have a deep understanding of the vaccine and booster development process, the scientific rigor involved, and how their effectiveness will help combat and one day defeat COVID-19. That's Dr. Susan Bailey, AMA immediate past president. She's joined by Dr. Peter Marks, director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. He weighs in on booster efficacy against the Delta variant and what's coming next on vaccination for children under five. Where are we potentially going? Well, there are more vaccines in development, uh, but the most common thing that people are asking about now is what about uh, vaccines for younger children? You know, there are some special considerations. This episode was part of an AMA webinar recorded prior to the emergence of the Omicron variant. Dr. Marks ran through the latest data and recommendations on booster shot regimens and the evidence supporting the recent authorization of the Pfizer pediatric vaccine for five to 11 year olds. I'm Dr. Susan Bailey, immediate past president of the American Medical Association. We've invited one of the leading voices on this topic to answer your questions and share the most up-to-date information on the effectiveness of booster shots and pediatric vaccines. The AMA fully supports the overwhelming scientific evidence that shows vaccines and boosters are among the most effective and safest interventions to prevent serious illness, hospitalization, and death. As an immunologist, I can tell you that physicians play an important role as vaccine ambassadors for our patients. To make sure that patients have their questions answered, we need to first make sure that we, as physicians, have a deep understanding of the vaccine and booster development process, the scientific rigor involved, and how their effectiveness will help combat and one day defeat COVID-19. Joining us today is our good friend, Dr. Peter Marks. He's director of the Food and Drug Administration Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. As of September, Dr. Marks assumed the lead role as acting director of the FDA's Office of Vaccines Research and Review. He's board certified in internal medicine, hematology, and medical oncology. Dr. Marks led the Adult Leukemia Service at Yale University and served as Chief Clinical Officer of Smilo Cancer Hospital in New Haven before joining the FDA in 2012 as the center's Deputy Director. In his current roles, Dr. Marks and his team are tasked with ensuring that boosters and pediatric vaccines are both safe and effective and that they've undergone a rigorous evidence-based and transparent process. So now please join me in welcoming Dr. Marks. Thanks very much for having me again today. I'm, it's, I'm actually very grateful that you're uh, willing to have you. Uh, so um, I uh, will tell you about boosters and pediatric COVID-19 vaccines, both of which are currently um, top of mind um, uh, and we'll have lots of time for questions, I think. Uh, so um, give you a brief update on where things stand with vaccine development in, in a minute or two. Um, talk about the Pfizer pediatric data. I, I'll just review the 12 to 15 year old data so that you can see it in comparison to the five to 11 year old data. Um, talk about boosters for the immunocompromised uh, for the general population. Uh, and then uh, talk a little bit about further areas for vaccine development. So right now um, we have uh, the three authorized or approved vaccines in the United States, the two mRNA vaccines uh, from Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna, 
uh, and uh, the um, Moderna, which has an emergency use authorization uh, for individuals 18 years of age and up. Uh, the same is true of the Janssen adenoviral vectored vaccine, uh, the single dose Janssen vaccine. Now, there are a couple of other vaccines that are kicking around in development. Um, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, which has been used very extensively globally, um, uh, is uh, uh, something that has been studied in the United States, and we anticipate uh, that we may see that coming towards FDA at some point. Um, and then there are uh, two protein subunit uh, vaccines that are relatively advanced in development, one from Novavax and the other from uh, Sanofi Translate Bio. Um, and those are coming along through uh, phase three trials, um, uh, either completed or in progress um, towards FDA. So we may see a protein subunit vaccine in the not too distant future in the new year. So let's, let's move, uh, see the Pfizer approval uh, on, on August 23rd uh, occurred uh, because we actually had the biologics license application. We had six month follow-up data on more than 12,000 people. Um, and uh, we were able to review uh, the normal data that we would review for any biologics license application uh, on a relatively large clinical trial. This, this approval, though done in record time of under, under, under 100 days since its submission, um, was uh, one uh, in which no corners were cut. Um, um, and uh, actually, there were probably more eyes on this review <laughs> than on most. Let's move into um, the, the adolescents. So just uh, to recall, the uh, Pfizer dose for adolescents is the same as the adult dose. The schedule is the same as the adult dose. Uh, so 12 to 15-year-olds get a 30-microgram dose. Uh, the clinical trial that they did in 2,260 people uh, ages 12 to 15, uh, uh, and uh, they compared uh, those individuals um, uh, to uh, people from the clinical trial that was done uh, in our, the 16 to 25-year-olds. That was the original clinical trial. It's perhaps not as good as it was in the, absolutely as good as it was in the, in the 16 to 25 or the larger, the older trial, but not bad. The younger children, five to 11-year-olds, um, instead of being a one-to-one -one randomization, the trial was a two-to-one randomization. Uh, and they, based on a dose-finding study, um, received a 10-microgram dose. That is one-third the adult dose um, uh, was given in this age range. Again, cross-section of individuals. Uh, about 20% uh, of the 5- to 11-year-olds had uh, some comorbidity. The uh, adolescent immune responses, as you've heard before, were excellent. Uh, geometric mean titer ratios of 1.76, indicating uh, really quite excellent um, uh, 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 effectiveness in terms of immunogenicity uh, in this uh, population. And that's with the 30 microgram dose. The 10 microgram dose uh, in children uh, really met up very, not matched up very nicely um, to the uh, 16 to 25 year olds in terms of the uh, the geometric mean titer ratio of 1.04. Um, uh, and uh, this, I, I just re remember this for a moment when we come to the safety profile in a minute. Uh, so the adolescent efficacy was excellent. No cases in the thousand or so vaccinated individuals, uh, 16 in the saline placebo uh, uh, individuals. Just to remember this 
study was done before Delta. The uh, pediatric efficacy though in the five to 11 year olds was done during Delta. Um, and there was the dose difference. And so it, it, there were three uh, cases in the uh, uh, 1300 or so five to 11 year olds versus um, 16 in the uh, uh, 663 uh, uh, five to 11 year olds who were treated with the saline placebo. Um, the adolescents had a safety profile in terms of uh, injection site pain, uh, fatigue, et cetera, uh, that um, uh, was very similar to the adults. The younger children who were treated with the uh, 10 microgram dose had a somewhat better uh, uh, profile in terms of uh, the fatigue and flu-like symptoms. Still a fair amount of injection site pain, You'll see that the placebo uh, um, uh, in the 12 to 15 year olds, the placebo group in the, uh, uh, in the five to 11 year olds had a very similar number of, of events. And so we don't think they were under capturing events here. So we think this may be a real, uh, could represent somewhat of a, of a more favorable safety profile. Um, uh, but we'll just see with time as we do more safety surveillance. Um, so in terms of observed safety signals, we continue to uh, watch very closely uh, in, in the pediatric age range. For myocarditis and pericarditis, we continue to monitor very closely. Um, there is this concern that there does seem to be a peak uh, in uh, males in the ages of 16 to 17. Uh, that risk of myocarditis seems to extend up into the uh, approximately 30 to 40 year age range, although it, 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 it kind of tails off at, at the older ages. Uh, in the 16 to 17 year olds, risk of, in males probably on the order of uh, some, somewhere on the order of one in 10,000. Uh, the good news is those events have generally been mild. 98% of them uh, have been associated uh, uh, with a median hospital stay of one day. Um, and the most common medicines given during that hospital stay uh, from CDC's review of that have been uh, non-steroidal inflammatories or acetaminophen. So not a, uh, you know, not something we want to have happen, uh, but thankfully not the type of uh, immune-mediated myopericarditis that one can see with certain other vaccines like the smallpox vaccine. Um, uh, we will continue to watch closely here. We're a little optimistic in the five to 11-year-old age range that we may not see uh, myocarditis the same way we're seeing it uh, in the 16 and 17 year olds and up. And that's because the, the, the current thinking here is that this is possibly a cytokine mediated uh, event, an inflammatory mediated event that um, is probably happening in males because there's some interaction there with androgenic steroids. Um, uh, well, it's a working hypothesis. We'll see if uh, additional work uh, <laughs> Uh, makes that uh, uh, a reality or not in, in terms of uh, a scientific theory. Uh, just to mention, um, you know, obviously we have the uh, authorization now for, for vaccines and immunocompromised as third doses. Um, uh, in, and these are for 12 and up for the Pfizer and 18 and up uh, for the Moderna vaccine. Uh, in general, though, just to make sure, I just want to point this out that uh, with the mRNA vaccines, um, uh, those with diabetes seem to respond quite well. 
And there doesn't seem to be any difference between the response in people with diabetes um, to, uh, uh, compared to uh, the uh, rest of the population. On the other hand, uh, those with hematologic malignancies or solid organ transplants often don't respond so well, and particularly solid organ transplant recipients and those receiving similar uh, immunosuppressants to that which uh, solid organ transplants receive, they can have uh, reduced responses. So there, um, even when you boost, you should be aware that the, the rates of, uh, of, of protection do not get up to uh, the range usually uh, that we see uh, in uh, uh, with uh, those who don't have immunocompromised. Um, so boosters for the general population, all the rage, and some of you are probably listening to me sitting in states which are already boosting the entire general population. Uh, stay tuned here uh, because um, uh, you know, there uh, is uh, a lot of action happening. I wish I could tell you more about that, but a lot moving uh, in this area. Um, uh, and I think that the concern here um, is that with the waning of protection, there is concern that particularly the, uh, the oldest of the population, and then even tailing back perhaps even to some of the younger members of the population who were vaccinated 10 uh, months ago, uh, may not have sufficient immunity to protect them against Delta variant. Uh, and there's evidence coming out of various states that that probably is, is the case, and, and, and that's very recent um, over the past few weeks. So the additional vaccine dose may uh, provide uh, more durable immunity. And besides preventing hospitalization and death, we need to uh, uh, make sure that uh, we try to also prevent some of the serious complications of COVID-19, such as long COVID, which can still occur in vaccinated individuals. There was originally some hope that if you were vaccinated, you could not get uh, long COVID. But unfortunately, we now know that vaccination um, uh, helps. Uh, it probably reduces by 50% your chance of getting long COVID if you get uh, COVID-19, but it's, it's not perfect. Um, uh, we also want to try to uh, avoid disrupting critical services, particularly uh, if we start to have another significant wave. It'd be good if boosters would help uh, prevent having uh, a lot of uh, illness due to uh, COVID-19. And finally, there's this is not something that we label things for in the FDA, but it's something we have to consider as public health professionals, that if many people start having vaccine breakthroughs, essentially vaccine failures, they tend to lose confidence in the vaccine. And in this case, it's not, it may not turn out that the issue here um, is that this is a true booster in the sense of the vaccine given according to its appropriate schedule is waning in protection. It may just be that we don't have the schedule right first uh, out of the gate. And that's, it's understandable because we didn't have time to study these uh, like we would normal vaccines. And that's why we know, for instance, for the zoster, recombinant zoster vaccine or the recombinant hepatitis vaccines, they're given at zero and six months or zero, one and six months for some of these vaccines. So um, it, it, it may just be that this is something uh, that we'll learn. And ultimately, the, the primary series for COVID-19 or its successor will be a, 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 a regimen that's separated in part by more months. So the, 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 the boosters though, I will tell you, uh, the, the little bit of data I can tell you about boosters is public from Pfizer that they did do a clinical booster study 
uh, in 10,000 subjects from the original trial who were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive a booster dose or placebo, uh, meaning of 11 months after uh, they were first vaccinated. Um, age spectrum, uh, median age about 53, but um, uh, across the age spectrum. Bottom line is boosting did restore um, uh, relative vaccine efficacy uh, to about 95 to 96%. Um, and uh, that uh, seems to be, that was measured at a median of two and a half months. And we're hoping as these individuals are followed for a longer period of time, that maybe we'll see more durable immunity here than after the first two doses. Um, we also, as you're aware, have the mix and match. I just mentioned that because um, I, it, it is, I think we're, we're pretty comfortable seeing these vaccines mixed if necessary uh, and matched if necessary. Although in general, um, I think uh, the, the feeling, the going feeling is if you've got something, stick with it. We won't know for a long time what, what the most optimal combination is. Uh, and uh, the current state of play um, uh, is that we're recommending boosters for everyone over age 65, anyone who got Janssen vaccine, and if you're 18 to 64 and you're not in a state that already is declared otherwise. Um, the final thing I'll just end with is where are we potentially going? Well, there are more vaccines in development, um, but the most common thing that people are asking about now is what about uh, vaccines for younger children? Um, and, and you know there are some special considerations. One has to further dose de-escalate as one goes down uh, below age five. Um, uh, we get, uh, uh, you know, we 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 want to make sure we get the safety right here, um, uh, uh, and we want to make sure the benefit risk considerations are right. Uh, unfortunately, there have been deaths of children in this age range, um, uh, and so uh, we do need to uh, get through this development process. Um, and uh, the various companies are working through trials, um, and we expect them to come to FDA by early 2022. And we'll obviously work very rapidly, um, as rapidly as we can to uh, evaluate those data, but obviously we'll do it with the same uh, care uh, that we have the other authorizations. So I think I've gotten to all I wanted to tell you today um, and uh, we can go from there. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Well, thank you. Um, very interesting data. Uh, and I have lots of questions. Since children, although we know they do get COVID-19, they get long COVID and they die from COVID, um, there's some concern that the risk-benefit analysis for vaccination of the pediatric population really hasn't been established yet. Um, can you talk about this a little more? I think we, we were pretty uh, careful to spend a lot of time on this because uh, people are concerned, obviously, about um, risk benefit. Um, we're already getting back data in the 12 to 15 year old age range. So I think in the adolescent population, I think we're pretty, pretty convinced that the risk benefit is in favor of vaccinating uh, adolescents. And I think we're pretty convinced or we wouldn't have authorized it that 
uh, in the five to 11 year old uh, population uh, that it makes sense to, uh, to vaccinate th these children too. And that's because you do re you reduce the number of cases of uh, COVID-19, you reduce the, number, reduce the number of infections, reduce the number of cases diagnosed, you reduce the number of hospitalizations very significantly. And you know, if, if what I've hypothesized turns out to be true, and we'll know pretty soon, and the reason why we'll know pretty soon is because if you look at the numbers of five to 11 year olds who have been vaccinated um, uh, now, we'll know in about uh, a month after they get their second doses, um, uh, if, if we are correct with our assumptions that we should see a lower risk of, of myocarditis there. Um, the, the even, even modeling that same risk of myocarditis that we're seeing in the older uh, uh, adolescents, it's still the benefit risk still came out in favor of vaccination uh, because hospitalization from COVID-19 and the hospitalizations from myocarditis are not the same. A, the median hospitalization for a child um, or with or, or an adolescent or, or a young adult with myocarditis is one day, and as I said, acetaminophen or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Yes, they probably get an EKG. Yes, they get some troponin levels drawn. Um, the median hospitalization, uh, non-ICU hospitalization uh, is four days for COVID-19 uh, for a child, and four days in the hospital for a child is actually a somewhat traumatic experience. And unfortunately, there is a subset, and thankfully it's not large, but there is a subset that get MISC and end up in ICUs, and those are longer stays. So when you, when you do this risk-benefit, um, uh, I think it, 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 as, as we see it, um, it's still clearly in favor of um, having, this, uh, uh, having children vaccinated. My guess is it will be helpful once we have data on a million, two million children in the five to 11 uh, year age range to show that what I've just told you about our, our thoughts about myocarditis um, pan out. Um, uh, but even if we are, even if I'm wrong and the, the numbers are more like the adolescents, we're still comfortable uh, that we've made the correct risk benefit decision. Okay, um, so if if the theory that it might be uh, a cytokine effect that's being uh, magnified by uh, androgenic steroids, then it's a better idea to vaccinate boys young than it is to wait until they're after puberty. Um, so will pediatric populations eventually need boosters? Um, what I know you don't have a crystal ball, but uh, there are a lot of concerns about that. And, and parents are very concerned. I tell you, I've gotten more calls uh, since the pediatric vaccine uh, was approved um, than I did about the adult vaccines. Um, so what do we tell parents about their concerns about long-term safety, uh, the data on pediatric vaccines? Because most pediatric vaccines have a number of years of study uh, once they're licensed. This is normal. I think parents are, are, are it is normal to be concerned for your child. Um, and this is a very unusual situation, uh, the likes of which probably were not seen since uh, you know, years and years ago when we first had the introduction of some of the other vaccines that transformed um, our lives now. People don't understand what it was like to have measles 
uh, and to see children die from measles pneumonitis or measles encephalitis. Um, why? Because we don't see it if we're lucky because we're so well vaccinated here. Um, and a number of other illnesses. So I, I know it's hard for people, but essentially um, there have been a lot of eyes on these vaccines. They have, they have a lot of experience. We have a lot of experience with them. We're watching them very closely. Um, I think, you know, you as a parent obviously have to feel comfortable with, with this, um, but I would encourage people to get the information uh, that they need, ask their provider. And, and the most helpful thing is just tell the provider what your concerns are. Uh, because in some cases, um, parents are the, their biggest concern in, and I've been doing a lot of outreach lately. Um, and in some cases, parents' biggest concerns is they've seen on the internet that these vaccines cause you know, infertility in the children. Um, and, and that really scares them. And that sometimes they're just afraid to ask that even because they know it came from a source that might be a little sketch, but, um, uh, but it's still enough. They, it, they, you know, it's like this weird place. They trust it enough to put doubt, but they don't, they don't have a, uh, and, and they need to feel comfortable being able to ask those questions. So I would, I would have an inviting environment and not, you know, no question is to me an outrageous question when it comes to helping move someone closer here. So I'd encourage parents to ask about this. Um, there are going to be some parents who are early adopters and some who are late adopters. Our goal is to try to move the curve um, as, as fast as we can over. So, um, so all children are being recommended to get the COVID-19 vaccine, not just those that have uh, uh, fragile health status or any, you know, but are there any contraindications in the pediatric population? Obviously, an allergic reaction to one of the ingredients is one, but are there any children who shouldn't get vaccinated? Uh, good, really, really good question. Obviously, if a child has a known allergy uh, to any of the vaccine components, if you, if you have a child who's uh, been getting medications and they've ever had an allergy to polyethylene glycol or polysorbate, um, I think you'd want to speak with an allergist and not just go to a uh, some clinic because uh, they that that would be obviously uh, something that would be an issue. Um, I think obviously there are children who probably sh don't need to be vaccinated only because it's not going to work. Which is if a child is undergoing cancer chemotherapy for hematologic malignancy, there's no point um, because they're not going to generate an immune response, and it's better to know that you probably have to use some other method uh, of of dealing with. Uh, COVID-19, either post-exposure prophylaxis or hopefully in the future, uh, pre-exposure uh, prophylaxis. Um, but um, th that's, that's, there's, there's not a lot of exceptions to, uh, to this. Um, if you can think of any, I, I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doing the old head scratch, trying to, trying to think of one. Well, what about um, children on, um, or adults for that matter, that are on long-term steroids for uh, various conditions or even short bursts of steroids where we'll tell them, well, why don't you wait until after that's done to at least get your flu shot? Um, how does that impact the COVID vaccine? Yeah, I don't, we, we don't think it, 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 it short-term bursts of steroids don't seem to matter a lot. And, um, and the reason why I think we probably have a good answer for that is because people have already studied 
by giving cyclophosphamide and other, I'm a hematologist oncologist by training. Oncologists have looked at what happens there. And if you give the, as long as you don't, as, as long as you're not doing it on the same day, um, uh, you know, I, 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 separating out uh, by a week or two, um, the uh, the vaccine is is probably a good idea. So probably, probably be, might be ideal not to give it the same day you gave a big bolus of solumedrol, but if you could have, you know, I guess if you can't avoid it, you can't avoid it, but you, it might be best to uh, uh, to try to avoid not doing them right on top of each other, but pr probably you'd still get a reasonable immune response. The, the people who are not responding, and because even, even moderately, uh, you know, you know, people on moderate immunosuppressants still respond. It's people who are on, on uh, the people with, with solid tumors who are on multiple, uh, you know, immunosuppressants, cyclosporin and something else, uh, mycophenolate or acrolimus and, and mycophenolate. Those, those are, those are what we're, where we're seeing very poor responses. So along those lines, um, boosters in the immunodeficient population. Um, first of all, you know, for those of us in practice is, and we're monitoring antibody responses for our immunocompromised individuals, is there a cutoff level um, where we can say, yes, you're immune, no, you're not immune? Um, do we just keep immunizing immunocompromised individuals until we get, uh, uh, get them up to a certain level? And how long do we wait between shots? Yeah, so this is a real this so this is a real challenge, right? Um, because we don't the the studies if, if you have if you have access to a research grade neutralization assay, um, uh, then perhaps you can follow people uh, with immunocompromise based on the levels. But you don't want to just use a run of the mill assay uh, to try to determine. Uh, if somebody is immune or not, because they're not, they're just not sensitive. There is one, there is one authorized um, test for getting um, uh, titers, but that's not been calibrated for the vaccine. So you can't even use that. So if you want to know, uh, really, it, you need to be at a place that actually has a research test that you can use. And then if people are above a certain uh, titer in a pseudovirus or a viral neutralization assay, you could probably say, okay, this is good enough. Right now, what what we're what we're saying is, in general, it looks like after a third dose, you know, somewhere between forty and sixty percent of people moved from being poor responders over to being better responders. But it's certainly not a hundred percent. So, no recommendation for fourth doses uh, as of yet. Um, not yet. Not yet. Um, as far as the mix and match um, situation, um, are immunocompromised individuals uh, benefits of the you know mixing and matching? Uh, can can it be assumed that well they might have a better response to the uh, to the the J and J vaccine if they got the mRNA vaccine first or vice versa? Yeah. So great. Great question, and hopefully clinical research will show that. I mean, there's some data coming out of Europe where uh, it's not one of our vaccines that we have, it's AstraZeneca matched uh, with one of the mRNA vaccines that seem to show that mixing and matching an adenoviral vector and a, uh, an mRNA vaccine gave very nice responses. But there are a lot of variables here because in some cases there was longer distance between the uh, the time between the first and second doses. So I think when we see uh, 
well-controlled trials here, we'll, we'll feel better about saying this. Right now though, the good news is um, boosting, homologous boosting seems to do really quite well and trying to eke out that little bit of extra. I know, I know the people saw the, the, the booster data and they saw some of the, you know, oh, I wanna get this combination. But uh, the, the answer is uh, for right now, I don't think we can say that anyone is better than another. Just getting the correct booster regimen is the right thing to do. Um, do we have any information about the risk of myocarditis after the booster shot? Great question. And we do have some. And that's because um, Israel, uh, which has a population of about seven and a half million, they've uh, vaccinated enough of their population and they've now boosted um, uh, enough of their population and followed those individuals for more than a month. And, and so um, the data suggests that um, in 18, it's actually 16 to uh, 40 year old men, uh, the rate of myocarditis after a third dose resembles, much more resembles the rate after a first dose than it does the second dose. And that's, that's leading in part to kind of supporting this theory that maybe what's going on when you give the two doses uh, up front is that there's some stacking uh, of kind of a cytokine phenomena or an inflammatory phenomena that, that's going on there. But uh, we'll have more data soon, uh, but it does look like the good news is at least the third doses do not seem to have quite the same. It's probably at least the if you, you the data, the Israeli data are actually online, you can look at them. The data looks like it's a little bit higher than first doses in 18 uh, to 40 year olds. It's actually lower uh, in uh, with boosters than first doses and second doses uh, in, uh, uh, in older individuals. So um, we'll just have to see where all this goes. So it sounds like you're saying that uh, even if, let's say, uh, a, a young man has had myocarditis uh, from one of the doses, you would still recommend that he get a booster? Yes, I would have that individual talk with their physician, okay? okay. Because I, I think we want to understand what kind of myocarditis did they, I mean, the problem with the word myocarditis is it's like many, many, many medical terms. It, there's a lot in myocarditis, right? Myocarditis could be a troponin of two and a nonspecific uh, a T wave change that goes away in a day. Al alternatively, uh, myocarditis could be somebody in an ICU on a dobutamine drip. Um, uh, so um, uh, if, if, if the person had myocarditis um, in that latter scenario, I might think twice. On the other hand, if it was the person in the former, um, I, I might, and, and, and there are actually some case reports coming out of Israel where they have vaccinated people who've had myocarditis and, and with, a, with a third dose and they don't seem to have recurrent myocarditis, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not enough data. I would consider it anecdotal experience rather than real data yet. Well, what about giving them the J&J &J vaccine, assuming that they got mRNA previously? Be, be, be my guest. Great, great, great solution to... Uh, a great solution to, uh, to that problem, exactly. Medicine doesn't stand still and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. 
Well, what about boosters in um, patients that are, you know, have had their first two vaccines, but have had breakthrough infections? Um, what about boosters in that population? Uh, do they need one? And what's the timing? Yeah, really great question. I think if someone had a breakthrough infection, I would probably use the same kind of guidance that we say after uh, if somebody um, had uh, COVID after the first uh, after their first dose, which probably would wait about 30 days afterwards, because probably it's during that immediate period. There's probably high enough antibody titers from the infection that, um, and there's also possibly some inflammation going on. Probably just best uh, to wait about 30 days. That's what CDC recommended. Um, and I think it still makes sense. There are, um, we've had a number of questions about um, natural immunity versus vaccine uh, immunity. Um, what do we know now, especially with the Delta variant, um, about the differences between uh, natural immunity from acquired infection um, versus vaccine-induced immunity? Really nice question, um, uh, because this is one of the most, there, there are some people who are all just, just all over this um, thinking, and, and they're, they're, they're essentially adamant that natural infection is, is good or better than vaccination. And I think the issue here is this isn't quite like the measles, okay? Uh, we're dealing with a different, a different kind of infection, coronavirus and measles, like, I mean, unfortunately, viruses aren't all alike. Um, measles is a virus that doesn't change a whole lot. Um, uh, and uh, coronavirus, on the other hand, is one that does change a lot. And coronaviruses, if you look at the family, they seem to not be the greatest at making us have durable immune responses. Why? Because we get the common cold over again, uh, sometimes from you know slightly different uh, members of the coronavirus family. So. Um, the, 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 what I'm getting at is that what we know is that at least right now, um, if you had COVID-19, particularly if you had it months and months ago, um, it's probably a good idea to get vaccinated because Delta variant is not what you saw months and months ago. And we do know that at least in data now, at least I'm aware of, I think, two solid publications, um, and there are probably more, uh, where the um, the effect of vaccination seemed to be about roughly twice as good as natural infection in terms of conveying protection. So um, seems like a good idea um, uh, if uh, especially, and I would, I would, I mean, probably a good idea always, but it's probably a really good idea if it's, if you say, well, I got infected back in, you know, March, but I, I think I'm immune because this is not like getting measles back in March. If you had measles back in March, you're probably going to be immune now. But that's not the true uh, thing for um, uh, for COVID-19. Um, okay, the more about boosters. The Moderna booster is is half the dose of the regular dose, but the Pfizer booster is the same dose. Uh, and also had questions about, you know, why was the pediatric um, dose? Um, you know, one third of the adult dose. Can you give us a little information about how all those decisions were made? Yeah. So uh, let, let's maybe, maybe let's, uh, we can start with Moderna. Uh, and Moderna decided to use, uh, they, they 
looked at the uh, immunogenicity of 50 and 100 micrograms. Uh, honestly, the, the, in the, the difference between 50 and 100 micrograms with uh, Moderna, even in their initial trial, was not massive. Uh, and, I, and when they went back to boost, uh, they felt that the, the potential benefits of a lower dose in terms of side effects um, and, 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 and their stated reason as well was that they could make the number of booster doses go further um, was to use this. And their, their booster uh, essentially increases the geometric mean titer ratio by about 1.8 fold, which is reasonable. Um, Pfizer's when uh, booster full dose booster uh, increases by about 3.3 uh, fold. Um, but since they start off Pfizer, Pfizer, you start off at a lower level. At the end of the day, you know, people getting 50 of Moderna and 100 of Pfizer are probably getting boosted to about the same roughly. It's we these are not head to heads, um, but they're getting boosted roughly to a same level in terms of uh, uh, protection. So they decided to do that based on their studies, um, uh, and. Uh, they, they showed reasonable immunogenicity in their uh, booster study that, uh, that met uh, our, our criteria. So, so that 50 micrograms was, was authorized. Now, for the kids, why go down in dose? Well, um, the, there are various vaccines that have pediatric doses and adult doses. And that's because of the difference in size between uh, a, an adult uh, and a child, um, and also because of the difference in the immune systems uh, between the two. Um, as we get older, we may not respond as well. And, and frankly, we know that even from some of the early work that was done for the mRNA vaccines, that you know the the dose that doses that have been used do create a slightly lower titer in older folks than they do in younger folks. It happens to be good enough against COVID nineteen. Um, and so the youngest people are likely to have even a better response. And uh, you could see that that 10 microgram dose, they did the work. They did a, a careful trial. They did a dose ranging study and they showed, and they used a dose where uh, they got to an approximate uh, immune response that was similar to an adult immune response. And so that's what they saw and that's what they decided to use. And to the extent that there is less, and we'll only know this with time, so take this as preliminary, you know, with a grain of salt. If you have kids, it's just nicer, to, but if you can reduce the incidence of fever uh, and kind of malaise in your kids by a third or a half by using that, that slightly lower dose, and you're not taking a significant hit in terms of effectiveness, um, it's probably a good thing because more parents will be happy giving their children the vaccine. After all, the reason why we moved from a whole cell, uh, a whole killed, whole cell killed pertussis vaccine to the uh, acellular pertussis uh, was because uh, of the reactogenicity. Parents didn't like kids with fevers. In retrospect, the older whole cell killed vaccine was probably a better vaccine in terms of giving you durable immunity. So we do care about these things when we develop vaccines. Um, so probably some, something to be said for getting the dose in the sweet spot where you've got enough protection, but uh, you keep the side effects minimized. <laughs>
Very good. But that's not the that's not the main reason that we're giving the the lower dose is to, for fewer side effects. It's just a, kind of a pleasant. No, it's uh, a pleasant. It's a the, no. It's that's why I'm telling you this is just something we'll find out over time. The major reason why we're doing it is it's the right thing to do because the it's the that that geometric mean titer ratio of one, you know, the of, of is is spot on. It's where you want to be. It means that you're you're getting an immune response in a child. It's similar to what you'd see in an adult. Great. Um, well, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit in the time that we've got left. Um, many physicians are uh, being um, asked to write vaccine exemptions. Um, none of my patients have asked me probably because they know me too well. But, um, you know, is there anybody who you think uh, might, other than someone who was allergic to one of the ingredients, and if that's the case, I recommend you send them to a good allergist. Um, are there any genuine contraindications? Is there any reason we should ever write a vaccine exemption? Well, I, I find it pretty hard to, to, to see because I, I treat bleeding disorder patients and, and even people, you can get an intramuscular injection with hemophilia. So um, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's not, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of like things that would be a problem with the injection itself. Um, uh, it's really hard for me. We, but it, what, what we do see, um, is people who are vaccine hesitant for various reasons. Um, I think if somebody asks you for that vaccine exemption, it's probably a good time to ask them, what are their concerns about being vaccinated? You know, what, what, what is it? Um, that's really getting at them. Some people yeah. may not tell you, um, uh, but um, you know it, it is uh, it, it is a it, it is a it's a challenge for us, um, uh, particularly because at, at this point in time, as we see another wave of COVID nineteen coming along, um, it's pretty clear that those locations around the globe that have gotten really high vaccination rates are, are gonna come out of this sooner rather than later. And, and you can see what happened in Israel, for instance, when they got their vaccination rates and their boosters up, they're basically able to reopen their societies. So looking, but right now, I remember us talking about this last year, um, that if new variants do come along, we don't have to start from scratch. And, and uh, with all the clinical trials, we can um, uh, make those adjustments much more quickly. Yeah, I actually think we're in a really good place with the technologies we have, because um, if a new variant came along, uh, it would probably be a matter of very few months before we would be mass producing a vaccine against that variant. Um, so uh, that would mean, yes, we would have to boost people again um, or, or, or uh, immunize them against uh, that variant. Um, but it's, uh, I think we are now in a much better place uh, to be ready to do that because we have these vaccine platforms set up. Um, uh, and because the spike protein, if, if it changes, um, it can be easily um, uh, then shifted back into the vaccine manufacturing process um, for even, even it, not just for the mRNA, but for other vaccines as well. And so we shouldn't, and we, we won't have to go back to square one and do large scale clinical trials. That's a relief. Um, oh, here's one that I didn't ask before. Um, back to boosters. Uh, do we have booster data in pregnant women? What are our recommendations there? 
Wow. Uh, we don't have booster data in pregnant women yet, but my guess is that um, given how we think about COVID-19 in pregnancy, I would probably say if you are due for a booster, I would go get it because the, 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 the general thing in pregnancy has been um, COVID-19 is definitely worse uh, than these boosters. Uh, or the vaccine itself. And so um, uh, if uh, obstetrics and gynecologists um, have originally that were, were kind of hesitant, they were hesitant in the first trimester. Now it's basically, um, you know, pregnancy and lactation, it's reasonable to take these vaccines. And we have the data now from thousands of pregnant women uh, that are not showing any adverse um, issues. Um, we also have the data from women who have gotten COVID-19 and have lost pregnancies and had uh, significant morbidity. So I think the benefit risk here is clearly um, in favor of vaccination. Um, I think we tend to forget that that pregnancy, uh, that women who are pregnant are relatively immunocompromised, and that's how they're able to have a, a successful pregnancy and that we need to, to really, really take care um, of these uh, of women that are pregnant. Um, so I think I have pretty well run through all of my questions. Thank you, Dr. Marks, for once again lending your expertise to this discussion. Um, I really, um, you know, feel much better prepared to discuss boosters with my patients and to answer all those pediatric vaccine questions uh, and calls that I need to make before the weekend. Um, we wish you good health today and in the months ahead. Take care. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine.